any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Michael Knowles, author of many books, many wonderful books now, some with words, some without. If you put together his previous book, which I have here, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, if you put it next to and combine it with Speechless, you get a pretty good book. You get kind of the, the, the sum total you know, of a career. Brian, I, I fear that, you know, I've spent about a year writing this book. I think it's making points that have not really been made in the conservative space. I think it's making very important points about political correctness, about language, about censorship. And the simple fact is, it will never live up to my first book. It was my, my first blank book was the magnum opus. This, I hope, is, is my modest sequel. Well, indeed it is. And if nothing else, just the footnotes and the citations at the very mm -hmm. end are the length of, uh, of a normal best-selling page-turning book. And this is, <laughs> I got it two days ago from uh, one of your assistants there. Uh, I want to thank you for that. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it's so large that, you know, I, I, I haven't gotten past the equations in chapter four yet. So I'm working through yeah. those equations. I salute you for all of Einstein's general relativistic field equations. We'll get to mm -hmm. all that at the end. Why am I having Michael Knowles on the Into the Impossible podcast, the top 10 science podcast on iTunes and other places? Well, he is a scientist. He is a knowledge maven. He has uh, deconstructed and reconstructed our popular culture. And he and I have been together. We've talked about Galileo and his contributions to not only to science, but to writing as well. And you can look for an episode. I'll put a link to our our book club episode that we did together. And he's also, uh, uh, he's been on the uh, guest on the podcast before. But uh, today it's to celebrate the release of his new book, which came out today. Uh, it's called Speechless. And so, Michael, I love to play a game uh, which is called, uh, <coughs> which is called, you know, cover, judging, you know, judging a book by its cover. So I want to ask you, uh, this is kind of obvious how you got up with this cover. How'd you come up with the yes. cover and the title of Speechless? So, the title of Speechless was a little bit of a nod to my first work, uh, which had no words. This has many words and it's speechless. But I, I, the full title is Controlling Words and Controlling Minds. And the cover, you know, is the guy with the, with the gag on his mouth. Now, the reason for this is I know that there's been a lot of right-wing talk about how we're being silenced by the left and we support free speech and they're censoring us. And unfortunately, I think that so much of that talk about wokeness and political correctness and cancel culture has been shallow. I think that in many ways, the victim narrative that the right has, has portrayed, that we are the stalwart defenders of absolute total free speech, and the lefters, they're the authoritarian censors. I, I think, look, it may be, that may be true right now, but that doesn't really get to the whole picture, okay? The fact is that in the 1950s, you could be canceled for being a communist, and it wasn't the left canceling you, it was conservatives canceling you for being a communist. And the fact is today, you can be canceled for being an anti-communist, that's a problem too. But really what we're describing here is not just the purely negative, terrible thing that happens now of how people control words to control minds, but how really whoever is controlling the words is controlling the minds. The words that we use, the, the pronouns and the verbs and the nouns and the adjectives and all the other words do shape the way that we view the world. And there are going to be limits to what we can say. Language itself imposes limits. If, if we call, for instance, 
uh, Bruce Jenner, a sh- or Caitlyn Jenner now, a she, then we are not calling him a he. If Caitlyn Jenner really is a she, then that says something about reality. That says something about the limits of what we are permitted to perceive in this society. And the, the right used to understand this. The right used to understand that there are limits to speech and to society, and that there are just standards, I guess is what you'd call it. And the left, I think, successfully engaged in a campaign to destroy those standards from 1920 to, say, 1960, 1970, when it really broke into the main that was called political correctness. And uh, they've now convinced the, the right that we should abandon standards entirely. So you'll notice the more and more we fight back about against political correctness over the last 30, 40 years, the more ground we have lost. Both the people who give in to the left's new standards, obviously they've caused us to lose ground, but even the people who say, you know, I'm a free speech absolutist, I think they've caused us to lose ground too. I think this is a trap laid by PC. And I, I think either way, those traditional standards are abandoned. And the left, because nature abhors a vacuum, has filled that, that vacuum with their own radical standard that's totally redefined society. So I knew you would uh, bring in some physics there. You're dropping some Aristotle on us already with nature abhors <laughs> a vacuum. You know, most of what Aristotle said about physics turns out to be absolutely wrong, that there were uh, only four elements, earth, air, wind, and fire, that heavy things fall faster than lighter things, all things that he could have observed with his eyes, as Galileo would later do, as you and I discussed, as we talked about the peripatetics. But on contradistinction to his laws on physics, his thoughts on politics are run through speechless, and you really trace that through line and make it very bright. I want to ask, what is the legacy of Aristotle? And how do you reconcile this guy who got so much wrong about obs- observable things and yet was so right about things that are purely hypothetical or intellectual, like political animus, uh, the political animal that he described mankind as? Yes, Aristotle for a guy who, you know, obviously he got some things wrong about the natural world, there's no, con- no, no debating that, though I think we should give him a little bit of a break. He lived a very long time ago, did not have access to quite the same technology that we do. And I think it's worth pointing out, actually getting back to our discussion of Galileo some months ago, Galileo got a lot of things wrong about the natural world. Actually, the, the central uh, aspect, I suppose, of his famous discourses he, he gets wrong the, the way that the tides were. You know, right. he gets a lot of things right, but he gets that wrong too. So yes, Aristotle gets get some things wrong. And he did get way. right, by the way, as you and I discussed, you know, the very, very important uh, to both of us, uh, the notion that whales are mammals. Uh, Aristotle was the first to point that out. So mazel tov to, yes. to, to uh, Aristotle. But yeah, go on. So how did this notion, what is a political animal? Are you a political animal? Are we all political animals? Talk about that. We are not not just us total political junkies who follow all the websites, but all of us are political animals. When Aristotle says that man is the political animal, he, he means that the defining feature of man is that we are sociable. We form society. We are not, contrary to the modern, I think, ultra super duper libertarian or liberal idea, we're not just free floating atoms. We're actually always in the state of nature or otherwise, we're always together. We're always forming societies. The word political refers to the polis, right? The Greek city state. And Aristotle says the thing that makes us political is our speech. Animals grunt, 
and occasionally our politicians seem to grunt as well, but you like to hope at their higher end that they're engaging in speech which refers to objective reality and the way that we use speech, especially in a self-governing republic such as ours, is we use it to persuade one another. We use it to have debate. We use it to try to make sense of the world and how we're all going to get along together in accordance with one another and in accordance with society. So when you control the language, as the left has done, not just through the government, but through our educational institutions, through Hollywood, through the mass media, through big technology, which will outright censor people now for saying perfectly ordinary and accurate things. When you control the speech in a society, you're not just controlling one little aspect. You know, the First Amendment is not just one little amendment in the whole, in the whole body politic you're really controlling the whole thing. This is why when Google or Facebook or Twitter, these, these handful of oligarchs in Silicon Valley, hipster Rasputin out there, Mr. Jack Dorsey, when they control speech, they're really controlling our whole politics. And so it, this is not just a side issue or an aspect of the culture war. Really, when we're talking about political correctness, we're talking about the whole damn thing. And what do you say to those critics who say, uh, and I, these are just some people I've had on my show, uh, Dave Rubin, uh, a man by the name of Ben Shapiro, uh, I've heard of those guys. Michael Shermer, um, uh, James Lindsay, who I know, Heather McDonald, who I know. Um, I haven't had Candace Owens on. I don't know if I will. Uh, I don't know how much, uh, how much thermodynamic energy I can handle. Uh, <laughs> uh, Senator She's Ted, a force of nature. There's she no is, question. yeah. Senator Ted Cruz, who you share the Verdict podcast with. Shout out to that. Um, and Ann Coulter. I haven't had her on. Not sure I will. But anyway, all these encomia appear in and on your book. Michael, I have to give you a tip as someone who's written a book that had words in it before. You got to leave some room for people to buy the book. You know, if you, <laughs> you sent them all the book, now they're not going to buy it. But anyway, um, so how can you, you know, this, this uh, supposedly victim, potentially victim of cancellation, how can you decry this when all these people, these ladies and gentlemen, have written books about the evil, you know, suppression of speech and ideas yeah. coming from the left? How can you say that with all these books? And that's just a handful of the ones I've mentioned that have been on my show. There are lots of very prominent people who have endorsed Speechless, and yes. I'm very appreciative <laughs> to them. Lots of political people from different, whole different parts of the right. You've got people like Adrian Vermeule, mm -hmm. who is a Harvard law professor, very, he's a Catholic integralist. You've got Ben Shapiro. He's certainly not a Catholic integralist. He's <laughs> probably more on the libertarian side of the conservative movement. Senator Cruz, Ann Coulter, all sorts of people, yes. I am not saying that I am being censored. I'm not saying that I've been canceled. There have been high profile attempts to cancel me <laughs> on occasion, and I'm pleased to, to say that I've survived those attempts, even from powerful institutions. Uh, I, I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's phrase when he was describing, I think he was in Cuba at the time, mm -hmm. someone shot at him and he, he survived and he said, I, I, it was the first time I ever had the, the joy of being shot at to no effect. That's right. It's a very nice thing. But I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm being censored right now. I'm saying something a little more dire we are all being rendered speechless. I don't, it doesn't matter how many people download my podcast. Big Tech tries to censor my podcast on occasion, but sometimes they let them through. Sometimes Amazon uh, throws up some uh, obstacles to, to listing this book. Sometimes they let it through. That, that's not the, the issue. The issue is the way in which the left has broadly uh, reshaped what is inbounds and what is out of bounds in society. Truly today, if you go onto the internet and you say that a transgender person, you know, a man who identifies as a woman, 
if you refer to that specific man as a man, you call him he, or you call him by his proper name instead of whatever new name he's adopted, you very likely will be taken off of uh, the internet. Not 100% guaranteed the rules are opaque, but it's, it's possible and probable, actually, that you will. I, I give these uh, speaking events at colleges around the country, and some of them, I think, are controversial, and some of them really are not controversial. And the only one where I was physically attacked was at the event that should have been the least controversial of all, where I said this very topic, men are not women. If you come out and you say on the internet that there were any questions about the 2020 election, any hint of impropriety or fraud, if you point out the plain fact that the Pennsylvania election officials violated the state constitution in the way they conducted that election, you are liable to be taken off of the internet. Now, for some people, we have a big enough audience, we have a big enough platform that big tech is going to think twice about taking us off or they'll do it in a very clever way. For a lot of people who, have a, who don't have a large platform, their accounts will just be deleted. They, they will just be shut up. And it's uh, arbitrary in many ways because there aren't fixed rules. There are double standards and <laughs> triple and quadruple standards. Uh, but really what we're talking about here is the exercise of power. Uh, one of the observers of political correctness in its early days pointed out that political, I think it was Angelo Codevilla, pointed out that political correctness is less about the rules themselves. The rules are always changing. The terms are always changing. It's much more about the imposition. Who can force you to say and think what they want you to? So yes, I, I hope and I, I expect that my book will be allowed to stay on big tech platforms, at least for now. I have a nice big podcast and reach a lot of people. But what are the bounds of discourse? Now, the, the traditional, I don't even mean traditional, over the last 15, 20 years, the conservative response to this, to the left imposing newer and more restrictive rules around our speech, has been to say, hey, we've got to get rid of all the rules entirely. You should be able to say whatever you want. And do they really mean this? Do they really mean that you should be able to walk up to the water cooler? John from accounting walks up to the water cooler in his office. He's got a swastika armband and he starts yelling Zig Heil in the workplace. He should really be allowed to do, I don't think so. I don't think it would be cancel culture if he is fired. Conservatives once understood this. William F. Buckley Jr. used almost the same example. He said, academic freedom as we understand it today is, is really just a hoax. No one, believe, no one believes that a Yale University's sociology department should hire a neo-Nazi to teach about the superiority of the Aryan. No one thinks they would do that, nor should they. Of course, there are going to be limits and standards. The question is, what are those standards? And, and I think, will conservatives have the philosophical sophistication and, more importantly, the courage to actually assert them? I, I once heard, you know, that uh, hopefully Donald Trump lives a long life. I hope he has a nice time. But someday, death comes for us all. When he dies, one hopes that he donates his body to science and his spine to the conservative movement. Because the, the, I think so much of the reason we've lost our, our, our speech is because we are unwilling to, to exercise the, the virtue of courage. <clears throat> One of the messages that comes through in the book is that, you know, uh, as, as I often say, I think most debate is pointless. I, I don't know a single person who's gone into a debate. <laughs> you know, uh, thank you so much, Ida Bay Wells or, you know, whatever uh, her name, Hannah, Hannah um, uh, Nicole Nic Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. You know, oh, thank you. You changed my mind. You know, thank you. Yeah, I can't imagine you and Ben Shapiro, you know, really coming to agreement on it. So what is the purpose of debate and putting it out there? And a through line in the book 
as I take it, is that, uh, you know, it's almost depressing if one is a conservative that, you know, the, the attempts to, to date have been one of compassionate conservatism of George Bush. And, and it's always the guy who was in office, you know, two offices ago that gets all the credit and he hugs, you know, the current president or, you know, and then he gets canceled last. And it's kind of that Churchill quip that, you know, giving into the mob is like feeding an alligator, hoping you get eaten last. But I wonder... You, you kind of come off a little bit depressive, in, or it's depressing if one is a conservative, to think that the more you fight, the worse it gets for, say, your side on the, um, uh, on the side of, of conservatism. So what do you make of the prospects for those on your uh, side of the political aisle? Well, I'll give you hope. I'll give, I, I remember there's a Chesterton quote that said, it's the job of liberals to go on making mistakes, and it's the job of conservatives to make sure those mistakes are never corrected. And that's a little <laughs> bit depressing, but, but I think there is hope. You're, you're so right to observe that I observed that these, these uh, old Republicans are always considered wonderful guys, but the new Republicans are always Hitler. They called Reagan Hitler, they called the Bushes Hitler, they obviously, we remember, they called Trump Hitler and they yeah. still are doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, then now George W. Bush has been rehabilitated because now he's a really nice guy. Uh, few conservatives are willing to make strong arguments. The, the two exceptions in, in recent memory are Reagan to some degree and Trump to some degree. And what I mean by a strong argument is arguments that do not accept the premises of our opponents. Arguments that are not just working around the edges, trying to make things a little more efficient, you know, run the leftist programs just a little bit better and manage it better, but actually challenge the fundamental assumptions. The one issue that I think conservatives have consistently done this on, and they actually have gained ground, is abortion. Hmm. The abortion debate generally is not about managing around the edges and working here and there. The abortion debate is a debate from justice. It's a debate from reality itself. It, it is simply a fact of nature that a baby is a baby, and a baby is not a duck-billed platypus, and a baby is not a giraffe, and a baby is not an appendage of his mother. A baby is a baby and you should not kill that baby in the womb. And that's the way it is. That's the argument conservatives have made. And that is persuasive, I think. But on so many other debates, we're unwilling to make that argument. You know, on the issue of the transgender bathrooms, for instance, mm -hmm. we keep making the argument, well, it's, it's harmful for women's sports, as if anyone really cares about women. Very few people care about women's sports. Uh, well, well it's those of us with daughters, well, you know, we do care no, about women's sports. I mean, I don't mean to be flippant. Yes, I mean, I, you know, women, there are plenty of interesting women's sports. I like seeing Venus and Serena Williams scream at the, the coaches and the, and the referees at, at Wimbledon. Uh, sure, of course. And I, it actually is very unfair for girls who are competing in track. Maybe they're trying to get scholarships or something. And then men come in and beat them. That is unfair. But I think that's a side point. I think the real argument against the, the radical transgender ideology that has infiltrated our government and our boardrooms and our schools and our preschools, for goodness sakes, is the fact of nature that a human being cannot just change his sex. Uh, the, the, the philosophical premise that belies, or that, that is underneath uh, transgenderism is this uh, Gnostic heresy, this idea that my true self has nothing to do with my body. That's simply not true. Our, we know that our person as old Uncle Aristotle would tell us, is, uh, has something to do with our body and something to do with our soul, something to do with the physical world, something to do with the metaphysical world. And that's, a, that's an argument from justice, that's an argument from philosophy, 
and it's an argument a lot of conservatives don't want to make. You know, getting back to your point on debate, think about the debate over redefining marriage. This, to me, was, was one of the most telling examples. Regardless of what you think about whether or not we ought to call certain same-sex couples marriage or whether we shouldn't call same-sex couples marriage, we never had a debate over marriage. There was, there was no debate. We had a very powerful radical interest in the institutions uh, come in and call the rest of us bigoted if we held the view of marriage that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton held as late as, what, 2012, I think the date was? If we held the view of marriage that everyone for all times in all places have, has held, that sexual difference has something to do with marriage, we were suddenly awful, terrible bigots who didn't want to give gay people, poor oppressed gay people, the right to be married. The marriage debate never was about rights, properly understood. The marriage debate was about a simple question. What is marriage? And does sexual difference have something to do with marriage? But the institutions that, that control our culture, the media and the schools and the government and the Supreme Court that ultimately decided it because of the romantic poetry of Justice Anthony Kennedy, who somehow found that the Constitution gives us a right to intimacy, which his colleague Justice Scalia uh, quite rightly noted, uh, intimacy is, is rather restricted by the institution of marriage. Ask the nearest hippie, was, was his line in the dissent. <laughs> anyway, I digress. We never had that debate because those institutions shut it down. They redefined marriage as having nothing to do with sexual difference. And so then when the debate became, hey, should people with different sexual preferences have the same rights? Well, of, of course they should. Nobody, nobody would suggest otherwise. The trick of that debate was that they had redefined the whole issue before anyone had the opportunity to actually debate it. So, so one example among many of how if you can control the language, if you control the words, you can control the whole culture, and then you can have a kind of mock debate, but that, that doesn't really matter. The, the debate was already won when they changed the words. I wonder, you know, by its nature, you know, and I, I speak mostly as a political agnostic. You know, I've supported Democrats. I continue to support Democrats locally. I continue to support Republicans if that's, if that's, uh, if they align with my value system, obviously. And, and, you know, sometimes it could be a one issue voter if, you know, a particular uh, topic is, is more important than others. But it seems to me if conservatives are naturally in a time lag scenario where they're reacting, yeah. we think of progressives yeah. as being, you know, reactive or reactionary, but actually by its nature, it seems to me as a novice political theorist, that uh, that conservatism by its nature is fighting the you know skating to where the puck was rather than where it's going, and I wonder with new technologies coming on board and actually conservatism and your organization et cetera being at the forefront of some of these things, um, you know kind of preempting cancel culture by thinking where's the puck going to go? And I'll give an example: podcasting. You mentioned it. Podcasting yeah. is one of the more durable and less cancelable sorts of uh, media that we have right now. Of course, it doesn't stop. You know, articles in the New York Times, you know, from coming down on people like our mutual friend Eric Weinstein and, and other people uh, to try to cancel their podcast or, or what have you. But by the same token, uh, you can post it on your own website as long as Amazon decides not to take down AWS. Uh, and even that you could get around. So uh, what about like looking forward to where it's going to go instead of fighting the, the, the pronouns and fighting the, the marriage e equity battles? What's the next issue pre-gaming that, yeah. thinking where that's going to be? And then not reacting to it, but being out in front of it. What do you think about that as a political threat? <laughs> well, the question is often framed, is this really the hill to die on? 
Mm. You know, there's some, and, and I, I think you're totally right. Conservatives are usually uh, quibbling over issues at way too late a stage at the point that we've already lost. Uh, the issue, of course, with the hills analogy is if you refuse to die on any hill, eventually there aren't any hills left. I'm not in it. I don't have any interest in dying on a hill, but I, I think that one has to be willing to do that. One needs to be willing to risk something or else we've simply surrendered. And so, yes, you're right. We're, we're always so behind the eight ball. It seems that all we ever seem to do is try to, in Bill Buckley's words, stand athwart history yelling stop. And, and frankly, a lot of con conservatives these days aren't even yelling stop. They're saying, well, slow down just a little bit. Actually, go by a little more politely, please. So the question has to be, do we stand for anything? And if we do, what is it that we stand for? The reason I titled the book Speechless is, uh, beyond the joke of the blank book, is that we spend so much time on the right uh, prattling on about the abstract right to freedom of speech or the abstract right to freedom of belief. Uh, and yet, when we have the opportunity to say things, when we, we don't really have very much to say. Uh, we don't really seem to believe very much at all. This is why whenever Republicans have managed to wrest a little political power out of the system over the last several decades, what's the only thing we ever managed to do? Cut taxes. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing we can always cut taxes a little bit. Then they go right back up when the Democrats get in power. But we, we never seem to do anything else on every other major cultural issue we have lost. And the reason for that is that the right to free speech in the abstract means absolutely nothing to people who have nothing to say. And when we think about where did these ideas come from and <clears throat> you know the origin of it, you go over the history, the kind of Frankfurt School is a very illustrative history in the book. I, I enjoyed that. And and uh, seeing some you know kind of history, as Mark Twain said, you know, rhyming if not repeating. But wanting to kind of move in a direction that I heard you speak about on your podcast, Michael Knowles Show, and I know you've talked about on your podcast with um, with Senator Ted Cruz, and that's this notion of uh, of kind of McCarthyism. And I want to let yeah. you kind of give a, a full-throated defense of McCarthyism. But before I do, I want to point out, you know, I am uh, I am affiliated with a the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego, where we value academic freedom, we value um, freedom of speech, obviously. And, uh, but we also value science fiction. And I want to take you back to my favorite science fiction book of all time, which is Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Fahrenheit 451, which I'm sure you're aware of, has a theme that ran through it with the overarching kind of menace of McCarthyism. And Ray Bradbury said he wrote Fahrenheit 451 because of his concern that the McCarthy era would lead to book banning, book burning, and in his later years commented on how mass media reduces the interest in reading literature and that the threat was coming from the right. And you're now not only agreeing with him <laughs> that the McCarthyism was from the right, but you're, you're sort of seeming to intimate that it's maybe not an unhealthy thing. So let's talk about that. Uh, McCarthyism as a force for good? How could that possibly be, Michael? It's a, it's a movement around which people of good moral fiber can uh, can uh, circle the wagons that mm. they can assert. This was the language of William F. Buckley Jr., most mainstream conservative ever there was, mm -hmm. who wrote a book-length defense of McCarthy. He late in later years he came to temper some of that defense, re really for more practical reasons actually than anything, because uh, McCarthy sort of self-sabotaged. Uh, but for many years Buckley defended McCarthy, and for good reason. To to, to this point on on Fahrenheit 451, the prediction was that if we do not stop Joseph McCarthy and McCarthyism, 
Why, then we'll get books banned, books burned. We'll live in this dictatorship of, of uh, an increased censorship. That could never happen. So, so well, what happened? <laughs> we defeated <laughs> McCarthy, and we defeated McCarthyism, and now we've never burned books quite, uh, nearly as much as we are doing right now in America. I, I think that the fears of McCarthyism were extraordinarily overblown. I think that the anti-McCarthy forces, also known as the communists, <laughs> that's who, who he was fighting, mm -hmm. and the fellow travelers and the useful idiots of the communists are, are far more liable to burn books and censor people. And worse yet, they're gonna burn bad books, they're gonna, rather, they're gonna burn good books and they're gonna censor people who have something important to say. Uh, you know, Joe McCarthy, during his life, before he unfortunately kind of sabotaged and fizzled out, had some great admirers from, from across the political aisle, not just Bill Buckley, not just every, virtually every prominent conservative, but the Kennedys. I mean, uh, John F. Kennedy was a big admirer of Joe McCarthy. When Joe McCarthy died, Robert F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, attended his funeral. I mean, they, they were really staunch defenders of the man. Uh, what McCarthy, the history of McCarthyism has, has been so horribly revised by, by fiction writers who masquerade as historians. But the, the claim about McCarthy is that there were no communists in the government. It was a red scare. There were no, that's just simply not true. We know there were very high profile communists in the government. We prosecuted them, mm -hmm. most notably Alger Hiss. Alger yeah. Hiss, who was a high ranking State Department official. He had been at the DOJ. He was a spy for the Soviet Union. He helped form the United Nations. And actually the way that we found out about him was because his former communist ally, Whitaker Chambers, came out and testified against him and wrote an excellent book on this called Witness. So that was true. Harry Dexter White, a, a top-ranking communist in the federal government. I mean, this was really happening. And, uh, and they say that McCarthy never got a conviction. McCarthy's job was not to prosecute. McCarthy was a United States senator. McCarthy was able to bring, bring names. There were many, many communists who were prosecuted in the United States, as well they should have been. Mm. Uh, you know, there was a separate issue, which is the Hollywood blacklist communists were being blacklisted in Hollywood. And I find it so rich when cult cultural conservatives today who say that we need to you know, take back the culture, take back Hollywood, take back the academy, when they speak ill of the Hollywood blacklist, these same cultural conservatives are implicitly calling for, the, for blacklisting communists. We are implicitly saying, in some, in some cases, at least in my case, explicitly saying, we need to kick the communists out of Hollywood. We need to kick them out of the academy. They are undermining students' education. Uh, there is a thought that stops thought, and that thought ought to be stopped, to quote G.K. Chesterton. Radical theories that contributed to political correctness, like critical race theory, which is a derivation of the Frankfurt School project of critical theory, that actually undermines a student's education. And I'll give you an example of how. Uh, the premise of some of these kooky academic theories, notably critical race theory, is that objective truth does not exist. There is no objective truth, there is no objective reality. Everything is words, words, words. Everything is socially constructed. We can remake society as we like. Some other radical theorists from the 20th century, I think of people like Jacques Derrida, who says there is, there is no outer text, <laughs> which has been interpreted to mean there's nothing outside of the text. It's all just words. If you teach a student that they cannot rely on their faculties of reason, that there is no such thing as objective truth, you are not expanding their education. You are undermining their education because education relies on the existence of our faculties of reason and on objective truth. 
when we talk about expanding the curriculum, you'll, you'll hear this a lot, they'll say, we, at Yale, they did it. We need to decolonize the English department, to expand it and make it, first of all, I don't know, how do you decolonize an English department by kicking out all the English writers? That seems like, that seems like colonizing. It doesn't seem like decolonizing, but neither here nor there. They say we need to be more inclusive, and so we're going to add, I don't know, into the curricula, we're going to add some useless writer like Robin DiAngelo, these race-hustling people, or Ibram Kendi, all, all the critical race theorists. That does not expand the curriculum. You know this very well. You cannot expand a curriculum because there's only so many weeks in the semester. <laughs> there are yeah. only, only so many hours to teach, <laughs> mm -hmm. and you have to make certain choices. And when you teach one thing, you are inevitably not teaching something else. And uh, you know, the left understands this very well. The right used to understand this very well. And uh, I think the, the right has just bought into the left's crazy talking points now. And so the language that we use on McCarthyism <laughs> or free speech or, or academic freedom or whatever, this is all the language that the left used to use in the 1960s and 70s as, I think, a disingenuous ploy. Mm. And conservatives then opposed it. Now, the only people left using this kind of shallow language, I think, is the the squishy right, and it's why I think we've we've lost so much ground. Yeah, I mean, just hearkening uh, to the college campus that I inhabit, UC San Diego, <clears throat> and you know, we can uh, take you next time you come to town. I can uh, we can go have a meal at the Che Cafe. So we have a uh, <laughs> we have a cafeteria named after Che Guevara with his painting on it, lovingly adorned, along with Karl uh, uh, Marx and and many other people. And the, the comment I always wonder is, do these students who are, you know, uh, come from all different racial and uh, gender orientations uh, and so forth, do they know his history? And I don't think that they do. I don't think that they know what a, what a vicious racist person he was, what a homophobe he was. And, uh, and it's painful to walk by kind of an illustration of such a person along with Karl Marx. And, and that really brings up this, this comment that I feel nowadays is really quite pernicious, which is, that the academy is also accusing itself of being systemically racist. In other words, that, that the physics department that I inhabit potentially, or physics in general, or journals like Nature and Science, that they can be riven with, um, with anti-black racism, uh, etc. At one hand, it's, it seems impossible, almost tautological, for me to refute it. I know if I see a racist, I want to punch him in the face. I hate racism. I hate anti-Semitism. As a Jew, I've suffered from anti-Semitism. It's still the best country in the world to live in as a Jew, right? Uh, but the point is, uh, I find these notions abhorrent, and yet I'm told that I have to receive training in order to combat my, my implicit racism. But I say, wait a second, I don't know anybody who's going to admit that they're a racist, and I'm certainly not a racist. I hate racism. I really, I do. And, and so because of that, we can't falsify it. And that really brings up this notion of Karl Popper, who said that the notion of yeah. real science is that which can be falsified. And at the time, in the 30s, he was really arguing against uh, systems like dialectical materialism and, and communism uh, and phrenology and, and even psychology and dream interpretation. But anyway, we yeah. get into the situation. If I call you Michael, I say, Michael, you're... What anti-anti-Semitism are you working on today? I mean, you can't refute that. So yeah. do you have any advice for academics that, you know, are abhor find racism abhorrent, detestable, hateful, and repugnant to us? But we also don't want to say that, you know, we have to undergo training to become less racist because I don't feel that I am. And then I'm told that that's a sentiment of you know, exhibiting my, my potential uh, descent into this abhorrent trait. So well, where do you take this? Where does this all lead to? 
Here's how I respond to these people. Brian, you might be familiar with this gesture, but I will instruct your audience if not. You take your hand and you put it underneath your chin and you flick your hand out. This is an Italian gesture. Antonin Scalia got in trouble for doing this to a reporter. <laughs> it means, non me ne frega, I don't care. I don't care what you have to say, you crazy people. It, it's so silly because, by the way, not only is it uh, unfalsifiable when they accuse you of the implicit racism, but if you refute it, if you protest, they will say that your protestation, your denial, is evidence of your even greater racism. That if you were slightly less racist, you would at least be aware of what a vicious racist you are. It's all, all very silly stuff. It's not worth taking seriously. These sorts of people, the deputy assistant, deputy, deputy dean of inclusion and diversity and diversity, are, they are mere parasites and leeches on the university. The Robin D'Angelo's of the world are absolute extortion artists. You saw this actually recently with Patrice Cullors, who is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and an avowed Marxist herself. She recently had to step down mm -hmm. because she managed to transform BLM it, from Black Lives Matter into buy large mansions. She was caught uh, spending millions of dollars on, on these mansions. And the way she got the money, by the way, was not embezzling it from the cash-rich $60 million cash-on-hand BLM organization. They raised 90 last year. Uh, it's because she had a separate group that would go, it was a consulting firm. She'd go into local governments and other organizations and she would say, look, if you want my stamp of approval that you're not racist, you need to pay me money to give you these sorts of ridiculous training sessions. And that's documented, and Michael? That, that's been documented? Yeah, that is documented. It's actually, it wasn't the conservatives that, that uh, uh, uncovered this. It was actually other rival BLM organizations hmm. who, who got a little upset that she was skimming so much money that, that they looked into it. And she, she all but admitted this recently when she resigned from the organization. Uh, so, you know, to me, it's a total grift. It's a con. There's no reason to pay attention to it. The question that I ask these people when they throw this word racism around, a word that has now been defined into nothingness, is I ask them, why is racism wrong? Why, why is it wrong? Why is it a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing. I, uh, I, I don't engage in it. But I think it's wrong because man is made in the image of God. Right. And so right. racism is an offense against human dignity. Mm -hmm. Simple, it's easy, I don't need to, you know, flagellate, well, as a Catholic, I suppose I should flagellate <laughs> myself anyway, but I don't need to go on and on about, oh, no, seriously, believe me, I'm not a racist. It's very simple, I'm not a racist because I believe man's made in the image of God and it, it's an affront to human dignity. Done, spick and spam. Why do you, woke person, believe that racism is a bad thing. They won't have it, they usually don't believe in God. They certainly don't believe in human dignity. Uh, they, they won't have an answer to it. Actually, their answer will usually be that, uh, I don't know, black people or whatever, name whatever victim group is a special class and deserves special privileges, which of course reveals that they themselves are engaging in a sort of racism. To say that white people are irredeemable, which is what many of them say, uh, is to engage yeah. in a kind of racism. So what you, what you reveal, of course, is what they refer to as racism is, is nothing of the sort. It's just a cudgel. It's just a word <laughs> with which they can beat their political opponents into 
silence and leave them speechless. When I, yeah, yeah, nice that how he turned back to the cover of the book. <laughs> it's a good, Truman Capote would be proud of you. You have to, a, he said, a boy must hustle his book. Um, but let me, let me take the, uh, the Steelman uh, op- uh, opposing position. So also at UC San Diego, we were the first university to offer a tenured position to a, a physicist by the name of Maria Gephardt Mayer. She was a Jewish woman, but she was also a woman. And she was denied a tenure role at, at University of Chicago, at Argonne, at Hopkins. And we were one of the first institutions to take her. And and actually, she had some difficulty, along with other people, getting housing in the early 60s because there was a covenant uh, against Jews buying property. You shall not, it said in the original title to my home in San Diego and in La Jolla, it said, uh, you shall not sell to a black, a Jew, or a Mexican. Uh, So I, by the way, parenthetically, I think scientifically racism is evil and abhorrent and self-destructive because we we know that, uh, but merely assuming the most basic characteristics about a person are somehow indicative of their intellectual power and shutting that out of the scientific endeavor, that is intrinsically anti-scientific. If I judge somebody and say, because they're black or because they're a woman, that is repugnant and abhorrent. And, uh, and it, but it's fundamentally anti-scientific also. It's excluding scientific progress, and no good scientist worth his or her or their salt would want to exclude scientific progress and preclude it. We'll go into more detail on that later. But I want to ask you, I asked Heather McDonald, your fellow Yale graduate, I said, Heather, how do you, do you think scientists have changed in 100 years? And she said, no, science is about a meritocracy. And I said, uh, oh, yeah, well, Einstein couldn't win the Nobel Prize for about 15 or 16 years because he was basically because he was a Jew. And if you don't think that uh, scientists change over time, as I don't either, um, how can you really refute the statement that that you know science is systemically plagued with sexism, with racism, et cetera? In other words, we had bans, we had covenants, we had restrictions against Jews and women and blacks. Why is that not? Why are you so confident that that's not an issue today, Michael? Yes. No. I, th- I think this is a very important point, and I think it's one where conservatives get things pretty wrong. You know, the the language that has cropped up over the last 30, 40 years about um, equality of opportunity and about how, you know, everybody in America is on equal footing today, I think it's a little overstated. I mean, certainly people have immense opportunity here today, but uh, history matters. I wish conservatives would recognize, we seem to know that, at least when we're speaking specifically about the study of history, but then we don't apply it to the situation today. It is, it is a fact. Half my family came over on a sardine boat, but the other half came over on the Mayflower, and mm-hmm. I can trace my lineage back, mm-hmm. and it gives me a certain perspective on the country. And I suspect, no matter how much I loved my country and how grateful I were, if my ancestors had come over on a slave ship, I would have a different perspective. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating. <laughs>